Good afternoon. My name is Jan Bock and I'm the Programme Director of Cumberland Lodge. Uh, welcome to our webinar series, Dialogue and Debate, today on the topic of togetherness in times of crisis. Our last webinar with Lord Stephen Green and Professor Linda Yu explored common values across cultural boundaries, and you can find a recording of the discussion on our website. Today, we want to reflect on some of the unexpected positive ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic across communities, and we'll discuss how disruptive events can increase solidarity and promote trust. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Mattia Diletti, who is a lecturer in political science at the University of Rome, La Sapienza. And Mattia's research explores the relationship between expertise in politics, as well as the Roman political system and community organizing. We're also joined by Sarah Farqua, who is the Director of Organizational Development at Crisis, the UK national charity for homeless people. She's also the chair of the coronavirus pro project team at Crisis. And Jude Habib, the founder and director of Sound Delivery, which she set up in 2006 to enable charities and people to tell their own stories and promote awareness of social issues such as domestic violence and poverty. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us today. So to those of you who are joining us on the internet this afternoon, do please get involved and submit any questions that you'd like to put to Mattia, Jude and Sarah as we go. You can do this by commenting on our Facebook or Twitter streams. If you want to remain anonymous, please send us a direct message on Twitter or Facebook. We might not be able to answer all your questions, but we do our very best to include as many as we can. So maybe I start with you, Mattia. Thank you for joining us from Italy, where you have now been in strict lockdown for over a month. Can you maybe start off by sharing with us your experience? Tell us a bit about the daily life of Romans at the moment. Well, I, I don't know the daily life of Romans. I've no mind because we are just five people in the same place and it's 40 days now. Uh, what we do, we are three kids and two uh, adults working with three computers and two smartphones because they, my kids make homework at home uh, and we work by, uh, from, from, and we work at home too. And uh, I mean, it's very, some way it's depressing because you feel that, that everything is, you don't know when it's gonna end for real. And we can, we can do a lot outside the building. We can run and walk outside the building for a, uh, one hour, one hour and a half, we can go to make some shopping, we can buy food in the neighborhood and we can go further and that's it. Every time, every, every time we go out, we have to fill this report if the police stop us. And uh, that's our daily life today. It's just I mean, trying to, to adjust and maybe we hope to uh, start beginning a new phase in around 20 days, the beginning of May. That's what the government say. And of course, we spend a lot of time on the social networks, chatting with people about everything, about economy, about uh, what happens in the north of the country where I mean, many people are dying because Rome is more or less quiet. I mean, it's not, it's not a, big, a big issue now. And we spend a lot of time chatting with people, discussing the future and discussing those days, trying to understand what we can do with our kids. And uh, we keep in touch with our families and we keep in touch with our friends. And 
it's 30 days. It's, you don't know if it's just one day or a couple of years. You don't, the time is very, I mean, very, very strange in this, in this kind of, uh, in, those, in those days. But I mean, this is, we try to make our best. We have, I have my lessons with my students, my Zoom, and that's it. It's our daily life every day, every day in the same way. Um, now, I lived in Italy myself for, for many years for my PhD research and then another year in Rome where we actually met when I did some research on the so-called migration crisis and how it was affecting the political system. Now, Italians are very much people of the piazza, people who spend a lot of time outside. A lot of Italian houses are comparatively small because so much social life happens outside. So what is the impact on the social life of Italians? Has it moved online? Um, we've seen people chanting on the balconies. How have you experienced this? Well, like, for example, we don't have a, an outdoor here. So we, we stay at home most of the day. And uh, I mean, it's, um, it's a stereotype, but Italians like to chat a lot. and like to discuss a lot, to talk a lot. So we spend a lot of time on the phone, a lot of time on the social network. So uh, we don't meet the people in, in person. But it, it didn't change too much. In the, in the, uh, but we... Um, what happened is that we have, I mean, we have some neighbors here that the people are really, really uh, in trouble because in some popular neighborhood and some uh, poor neighbor, uh, now we have a problem with people asking for going out. I mean, that's the point. We need to uh, lower some restriction. We, we need to try to find a way to, to live with the coronavirus, uh, trying to uh, make a normal social life. But at the same time, we, uh, I, I feel like that we are all trying to, to keep tight. I mean, we, we stay in touch. We, stay, we really stay in touch. And that's something that is very important in this, in this moment. Even I, I think we try to understand what happens to our um, to the people who live close to us in the same buildings in the same place, and what it's very strange because outside you can see that the the air is very clean, and everything is is silent. Everything is quiet. It's it's re really like like a movie, and we are just trying to um, to keep in touch all the time. I think that's very the most Italian reaction we are. You're having this, this keeping in touch and trying. We, we, we talk with the person on the other side of the street and we ask if there are problems, if they need something. And that's the way it works in many, many neighborhoods. To what extent is there a sense of we are all in this together? This is something that is affecting all Italians, because obviously, as you just said, the situation in the north of Italy, in Lombardy, for example, is very different from the situation in Rome, where people might be saying, why are we still under lockdown? Is there still a sense of we are all in this together? This is affecting all of us. So is this fracturing? I mean, Lombardy is a tragedy. We have around now, right now we have in the whole country 20,000 deaths, okay? It's a lot, but there, most of them are in the, in the same region, Lombardy. And because it was the first one, and because uh, they made some mistakes at the beginning. So um, they make some mistake at the beginning when in the, the full emergency of the first days, and now they're still paying for these mistakes. It didn't happen in other regions, okay? So we no, we, we, we really stay together in this. And I think it's, 
uh, there is some kind of proudness because people think that Italians are not very um, are not capable to to be are not disciplined. Uh, it's not true. It's not true right now. The people are really, really uh, doing what the government asks, and I, I think it's. Uh, I, I'm I'm more uh, worried about what happens next because we should when we are going to. Uh, restart, we are going to see other problems we don't see right now. We're going to see that some shops or uh, hotels or restaurants, they are not going to open because they do not have money enough. We are going to, to see people without job. We're going to see social problems that right now we are not uh, looking at because we are all together. Italians are very, they, they can stay all together and be, I mean, uh, tight, but I think that if we're going to see some troubles, it will be in the next future, in the next two, three, four months, and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, you alluded to this, to, to a sense of togetherness and a sense of solidarity. Can you maybe say something about some kind of concrete community initiatives that, that you've heard about or that you've even noticed or that you've, you've seen on social media? Community initiatives that promote solidarity in these difficult times and what they might look like? Uh, first of all, we have to, um, I mean, this is, the, this is the city of the of the Vatican. So we have the Catholic Church very, very involved in um, staying in touch with fragile people. They work a lot on, I mean, they, they, they bring food and it happens at every level. I mean, you have uh, a lot of volunteers in both uh, um, Catholic or not Catholic that are working on bringing food, asking for uh, if the people uh, are good if they are safe at home. I mean, it's impressive how many people you have on a formal level with NGO organization working in every neighborhood and informal uh, solidarity. I mean, uh, I know what happens in my street. Okay, I know what happens in my street, and I, uh, I know who who need more who need care in these two or three streets close to my house. Uh, we know what happens, and that's something we. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty typical. I mean, we, we know what happens. We know where the fragile people are. We can talk to people. I think it's, um, uh, I think it's, I mean, in, it, it's from this point of view, it's working very well. I mean, it's surprisingly. I'm not surprised of this reaction. And I know the Roman, I mean, it happens in Rome. It happens in Milan. What happens is the dark side is, Sometimes people are looking for scapegoats, okay? Like people who don't know uh, why are you um, walking around? What's happening? Why are you outside? I will call the police. The dark side is the people sometimes are extremely nervous and looking for some scapegoats because everyone is making an effort and they, do they would like other people making the same. And you feel the stress now of this situation. And the media don't, don't really help in this. Hey, thank, thank you, Mattia. Um, really interesting insights from Italy. Uh, Sarah, you've been leading the Crisis UK Coronavirus Project team over the past weeks. Can you tell us a bit more about your experience of the kind of key challenges um, and, um, and key projects that you're currently working on? 
Yes, of course. Thank you. I, uh, we we work in um, homelessness, as you as you rightly said, and some of the most vulnerable people in our society are those that have been um, previously housed in night shelters with shared facilities, limited facilities, at worst on the streets. But certainly, you know, the 270,000 people in the UK um, that were facing homelessness, experiencing homelessness before this crisis. And the what this pandemic has done for us is... Um, is really highlighted the inequality in society and how vulnerable some some groups of people are and the need to really uh, give voice to them. But some of the positive things that we've been able to experience are the um, the real insight and understanding of not having when we're all talking about staying at home, we're all talking about self isolating. If you're uh, if you're homeless and these are things that aren't possible for you to do. And what this pandemic has done, I think, is really created um, a different. Uh, um, uh, some more, greater empathy and a greater insight into what that that must feel like. Uh, we've been working with government um, and local authorities across the UK in order to move people from streets and support people to to take advantage of um, temporary availability of hotel rooms, providing support for that in terms of um, volunteers. Uh, yeah, one of the really positive things that has come from this is that our organisation provides a, a humanitarian service at Christmas for 4,000 guests supported by 10,000 volunteers. Uh, we went out very quickly when we, we realised the gravitas of the situation to ask if people would be prepared to, to support those um, people in this temporary accommodation, um, both in terms of meals and welfare, um, uh, uh, providing of clothing, um, but also in terms of care calls, staying in contact with people and so forth. And 850 people out of 10,000 came forward in two or three days. And so, there, you know, on on the one hand, it really does show the inequality that exists in our society and the need to give voice to that and to new solutions. On the other hand, it also shows that when the government can make um, accommodation through hotels available at really short notice, where we can see changes to policy in terms of our benefit levels within uh, the UK that enable people to access permanent housing solutions that they haven't previously, it also it also has the benefit of showing that homelessness is not inevitable in a society. It really can be ended, and that it will. And and you know, four thousand people were moved into accommodation in just a matter of days, and so it really gives me hope that actually um, our society may see longer term solutions coming out of that. So yeah, our, our the the sort of humanitarian response, moving people into accommodation providing volunteers to support that and really pushing government and local authorities to make sure that um, as many people are able to access that as possible and that there are permanent solutions after that has been our, our real focus, yeah. Well, that's really interesting that you talk about the permanent solutions. I mean, to what extent do you think these forms of solidarity and support can then replicate it outside of a pressing crisis? Because under an emergency, it's relatively easy to talk about exceptional arrangements. That's always uh, the benefit of a state of emergency. How easy will it be, you think, or feasible to replicate um, the kind of solutions you're currently talking about once things have gone back to, or, or to a new kind of normal? Well, I think one of the great things it does is it high, it, it really um, 
it reduces the belief gap. So one of the things, like I say, is that homelessness is, is seen by many people as being inevitable. And I think what this, um, what this scenario, we will talk about this scenario for a long time, both because it provides evidence that it is not inevitable, that, that policymakers can create solutions for a better society. I think also as well, what we have seen um, that we were able to respond really quickly with not just for our own organization, but a cross sector campaign, looking at all of the resources that homeless people would need, money, volunteers, gifts in kind, um, you know, uh, campaigning solutions and, and um, and we've seen a real surge of interest in that and we would very much hope to 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 galvanize that and i would say that what um is great is that we have um partners across the uk uh, individuals and um, other organizations who are speaking to us and saying we can't go back we don't want to do that in newcastle or we don't want to do that in southwark or we don't want to do that in merseyside and so i think that opens up um you know i am not complacent at all about even making people safe today but i'm um because there's still a lot of work to do on that but i am I do think it has opened up a dialogue um, that I think that we have some new evidence that we can we can put to um, policymakers and that we will be backed by a, a new empathy that we see in some of our support base and, and wider community. And, and as you just said, you worked across different councils and local authorities and devolved governments. Are there any really stellar best practice examples that you, you can maybe share with us from um, councils or local authorities that have been really fantastic in responding and creating new forms of collaboration? Yeah, so I would um, I'd highlight Newcastle City Council, actually. Newcastle City Council are um, were um, a local authority we were already working in and who had already uh, committed with us to end homelessness within the next 10 years within within um, uh, their geographical area and good work had been done and I um, through ourselves um, with them and with other partners um, I can see that work accelerating both in order to 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 get rough sleepers off the streets of Newcastle really quickly but also real commitments to 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 move on these timescales and and to increase our ambitions so that we achieve our goal in less than 10 years so that would be an example I think of, of where um, things are working well and they're not exclusive but they're a great example Okay, thanks, Sarah. Um, Jude, maybe let's let's talk about your experience. Uh, you came to Cumberland Lodge in February when we had a conference here on resilient communities, and our participants in discussed the importance of shared experience in building empathy. How important it is to share some experiences for that kind of empathy and empathetic understanding to emerge. Uh, to what extent do you think this is true at the moment in communities fighting against the coronavirus and its effect on communities? I mean, I think what's really interesting is what I'm hearing from the ground from some of my networks working within communities and what they are what they are doing and the stories that are being told. Um, so, for example, I was having a conversation with um, a guy from Newcastle, funny enough, who's an um, asylum seeker, and he's taken it upon it himself really to create a mini food bank, and he's been on his bicycle, traveling around Newcastle, um, delivering food products to, initially it was actually to as other asylum seekers, but also um, recently arrived refugees who've come and settled in Newcastle. And now he's opened it up to a, um, a wider community of people who are more vulnerable. And I think 
people within the community are seeing perhaps MD was possibly invisible before then, but actually the community is really seeing a real connection in what MD is giving back within the community. Um, uh, another um, a refugee with the rights remain, Hassan, recently, who I worked with a couple of years ago, who tweeted a photograph of him. He was came on a very difficult journey from Syria to the UK. Um, he's a documentary maker. He's now a cleaner on a COVID ward for an NHS hospital. And so what I think by bringing those stories to light and putting themselves in the spotlight really shows that that they are part of the community. And I think that's opening up a different relationship and a different understanding in terms of the role of refugees and migrants within society. And I think that's a really special thing that they're part of community, they're intrinsic to community. And I think people are, I'm hoping that people, this will also be a sea change in terms of how, how we see community, what is community? we are community and and all the people who make up that so what i've been seeing and it's interesting a lot from some of our really vulnerable groups is how they are stepping not just stepping up i don't mean that but how they are really showing their true colors you know their colors that well i've always seen but possibly a bit more publicly now about how they're supporting each other now that's really interesting because you're you're working on storytelling and the importance of stories. And we've heard from Atia that there's a strong sense of uh, of shared experience. But Sarah pointed out that actually it's very dangerous to assume that we're all in this together to the same extent because actually it's revealing a lot of uh, differences. And I think Emily Maitlis made a really powerful statement to that effect on Newsnight, saying that actually is a big difference when you're not allowed to go outside and you have a nice mansion somewhere in the home counties or you're in a tower block in London and you're not allowed to sit on a park bench, for example. But of course, storytelling is powerful when people can identify with the story. So how do you navigate these constraints between saying we're in this together, it's a shared experience, we want to respond collectively and making sure we're not ignoring differences or you know, pretending that actually um, there is much more similarity than the important injustices that are, are hidden be below the surface? I think one of the key things I'm doing is making sure that those people who are living in housing uh, in tower blocks or have experience of the criminal justice system and are now self-isolating at home, which is quite triggering. I think a really important thing is to, to support them and work alongside them so that they can tell their stories in their own ways and in their own words. And I think we are really seeing that. And I think that, um, you know, for us, and I think it's a global language, the word lockdown to us, you know, I never really connected it with it until a month ago. But actually, the people who've been through the criminal justice system, actually, lockdown is quite triggering. It sends them back to a place. And I think for people to bring those stories out so that people understand what lockdown means to other people, so there, there is, they're building that connection because we can't take away what's going on. We are in a very, very difficult time 
and the people who are the most marginalized, the most vulnerable, are the ones who are going to be more greatly affected, not just now and beyond, but actually they are also the ones who are going to be working to find the solutions and, and, and should be absolutely be leading on the solutions. So I'm, you know, a lot of the work I'm doing is really spotting the stories that aren't being told within my network and 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 trying to get them out there so that more publicly or within the media um because if they don't tell their stories who will and actually this is this is the time so gypsy and romani communities who are probably some of the most invisible communities you know just getting a sense of what's what's going on with their communities i think that's important to highlight so that's what i've been doing and i think by doing that, people who have the privilege, like myself, where I have a roof, a place to call home, can can also start walking in other people's footsteps. And I and I think, and I think people are. You know, I I speak to some people in my network, or when I'm talking to my family about some of the stories I'm hearing on a daily basis. You know, I think that that really is a reality check for people. And I think actually we, a lot of people are, are having a reality check about what society means, what community means, and what is our, our role in society. And however difficult it is for me, because I'm obviously struggling with the situation we face, but actually what keeps me going is the incredible work that's going on in community and, 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 and people, you know, the MDs, the Hassans, the Brenders, who are really giving to their communities. I mean, there was a story just I heard last night of someone who's living in temporary accommodation. They don't have a washing machine. You know, they're isolated. They cut the, 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 the place where they would go to do their washing is closed. So a small charity opened their doors and let that the lady to go and do her washing. And actually someone from the community now goes every week, picks up the washing, and delivers it back. I mean, that is, that's, you know, th those simple things like that are just incredible. And of course, in, in, in media reporting, the scales are enormous. On the one hand, we talk about an unprecedented bailout package, um, hundreds of billions of pounds are spent on, on saving the economy. But then you talk about these, these stories, these local stories of individuals. What do you think What's your what's your take on how the media are covering this? Um, where are the little stories and all the big stories? How are the scales going going up and down? What what do you think? Um, it, how's it working? What's your you have a background? You work for the BBC. Uh, how are the stories being told? Is there enough space for the these positive stories? Because obviously, often bad news is good news in many ways as, as well. I mean, it's very interesting you say that because actually, I wrote a note to myself which saying that actually there's a real appetite for positive news. So journalists from the BBC and the World Service are saying to me, this is what they're looking for. So I actually am on a regular basis talking to journalists about the kind of stories that are out there. So there are the positive stories, you know, the um, former, per, the gentleman who's going to be a hundred, who's just raised, I don't know, 12 million pounds by 
walking in uh, along outside his house is an amazing story. Um, so in terms of in terms of the media, I think there's a, an appetite for positive stories. I think the struggle is getting the stories that are more nuanced, so not just positive, but talks about some of the groups who aren't being represented. I think it's quite difficult at the moment because our news is very much still in um, the crisis in terms of what's happening, the numbers, the figures, and in news programs, some of the other stories are slightly being squeezed out. Um, there's definitely, obviously, with people not being able to go out, um, there's a real appetite for first-hand storytelling. Um, so the moment the stories we're seeing are medics, doctors, um, uh, frontline um, social workers, or people going to do connected with medical and health, like Marie Cure nurses doing incredible video diaries. So at the moment, those are the stories that are, are being told. So the homelessness stories, the various stories that are possibly harder to get out there more publicly. I don't know, Sarah will probably know more than me, but I do think in time, these other stories will being told. And I, you know, I've worked on both sides. I've worked within the media and, and on the other side. And I, I, I think there's real empathetic reporting and I think there's um, I, I've seen I've seen some really great coverage in the news that I'm I would be proud to have worked with those outlets. Um, but it would be interesting what the others think in terms of in terms of the coverage. I mean, I definitely think their stories not being represented, and I think it's just around time. You know, most of the news news outlets have limited time. And actually what they're doing is the the um, the bigger stories are having much more airtime for them. Um, and so some of these other stories aren't, aren't yet getting the coverage, but I think will. Well, let's ask the others. Um, Sarah, what's what's your take on this? How do you how do you what, what kind of marks do you give the media, the mainstream media on reporting? Uh uh, so I agree with Jude in the fact that I think that there is some empathetic reporting that's going on there. I think that uh, one of the things that we've been looking to do is to get is to post materials to people that we work with and um, um, and 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 also digital tools and provide people with um, phones and tablets. We've had some really great help from partners in in helping people use them. And one of the things that um, I think is 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 key at this time for for um, for um, homeless people or those people that we work with is uh, you know these are communities that are isolated all the time so they're used to isolating but this is a different isolation so I guess the thing for us is it takes time um, but the time is really important and really valued you know so the we spend a lot of time we have a coaching model anyway so we're spending a lot of time one-to-one -one time with people to listen to them to their stories to encourage them and teach them um, uh, or to co-learn I would say I'm, I'm not sure that um, I'm any better at my digital digital tools than some of the people I'm speaking to but to capture stories to share them um, I think it will be an absolutely critical point of how we um, uh, emerge from um, from lockdown um, and re-enter in in terms of um, 
what, what the future looks like to have captured those stories. I think they are a really important part of what we've learned. And I think they are a really great way of reflecting um, the challenges of people. And I couldn't agree more with you that getting under the surface of some of the of the stories and telling individual stories. You know, I, I had a great example this week where the UK government has um, lifted the local housing allowance um, benefit we had a we've had a somebody we've been working with a long time in temporary accommodation in edinburgh probably less than 20 properties were available that he could afford um, they lifted the cap suddenly that makes 400 properties available that he could afford you know we have a land he's worried about well what's the long-term security he talks to a landlord over a mobile phone with some training he has a visual viewing he's now moved into a permanent property with the landlord agreeing a permanent lower rent for that that individual you know and there are lots of those stories out there there are lots of where we've got um people that are really coaching others so peer-to-peer -peer learning as well which is really really helpful i think so i would say that the the media are really open to it i think it's um uh, but we need to get that content out and at the moment that's a bit of a challenge for us but we're really we do see that as a critical thing to invest time in um and i i just feel that if there's if there's something this has taught us it's to to take time to listen to people and to capture those stories and to share them. We're all individuals, those stories are really powerful. And at the moment where we're all looking at stories through our digital media, it, 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 it's probably the most valuable thing that we can do, I think. Maybe to bring in Matthias as well, because you're obviously also following the news in Britain. What's the coverage in Italy like? Is it is it equally positive? Um, are there all these these great stories? Because the the death toll is is in many ways much greater, and Italy is probably two three weeks ahead um, of the UK in terms of the pandemic. Uh, I mean, we have every day we have a press conference at six p.m. and we know every day how new deaths we we have in this country. So we are still very focused on. Uh, those data, those figures, and we, and now some we are looking more for uh, guilty who made the mistake in the uh, NHS Italian system. So I think it's in positivity. We, we heard every day about a, a, a solidarity, a story about solidarity. We, we, we knew many things about uh, good things happening all around the country, but we are still very focused on. Uh, what's going on in uh, Lombardy, in Milan, in, in the north of Italy, because it's still a full emergency. But I think it's very important what's happening in the um, uh, grassroots level, because I, I made you a, a quick example. I know an NGO called Nonna Roma, it's gra uh, Grandma Rome, and they are, um, people call them and they ask for food because many families do not have food at their home in those days because they do not gain money, okay? So every day they knew uh, people with different stories, with different problems, and they uh, tell us what, who, mm, uh, all those things by social networks. And they are connecting people, they are, uh, now they're in touch. And we have uh, a new map of Roman vulnerability now. So we, I, I hope that after this emergency, we have a new system of relationship between um, NGO volunteers and vulnerable people. I hope that those, and 
those volunteers every day they knew they they know a new story of vulnerability and they uh, understand what's going on they know that something that happens something they didn't know they couldn't imagine so i think that at this level something is uh, already happening in this town and other towns and um, obviously, Mathieu, you've also worked on the relationship between experts, elites, intellectuals, politics, and, and community. What's happening to that, to that relationship? Because I saw that approval ratings for the Italian government are, are very, very high, and Italians are often quite skeptical of government and of organized politics, but there seems to be a lot of rallying around the, the prime minister. Um, is that uh, a short-lived effect? Is that too easy to, or too early to tell? I mean, right now, I think that people want to believe in somebody <laughs> because and the government is asking you to stay together to stay home and we are doing that and we are together in this there is all very an italian stuff we have um now we are dealing with european union about uh financial help and that's i mean and it's like and it's keeping together everybody and because that, that's a problem in and I don't know, I think it's gonna change in a few months. When we are going back to uh, daily business and we are still living with the coronavirus, I think that something is gonna change. And now we have, what, what's interesting is that uh, now experts uh, speak all the, all the time about everything, about social problems, uh, um, about health uh, issues, et cetera, et cetera. And now we have, a new, I mean, it's changing the relationship between the people and the experts. I mean, it's changing the relationship between uh, people and science. It's interesting how the people are taking interest in, in a new issue. I think it's something that's gonna, it's gonna change in our relationship with, uh, with science. That's important for uh, the Italian audience. Just a reminder to everybody watching us, um, if you have any questions that you'd like to submit, please do so through the live streams or anonymously um, through a direct message on Facebook. And we have a question from, from Marta who says, does anyone have thoughts on how we can bring isolated communities into the discussion in an empowering way? Because we often talk about big cities and big urban communities. Anyone would like to respond to that? Mattia. Uh, okay. I, I, yeah. uh, well, I think the second step is organization. I really believe that we are going to look at new demands, new vulnerability, and new demands and people who have real troubles. And I really hope we are going to uh, move, I mean, this, the people who are responding now to the emergency are going to move in something more sophisticated. We have to build um, grassroots movements and grassroots demand asking for uh, welfare, uh, welfare for um, uh, public intervention and for uh, grassroots solidarity. So I really, really, really hope that um, we can make an effort to uh, build something stable after this first emergency. So we can uh, we can ask to those, those communities because 
uh, very fast we they are going to face new problems i think that something could happen because um the people are staying in touch a lot so we have to uh to give strength to those to those efforts i think it's it's gonna happen uh, sarah yeah i i i agree and i i think that what will be really important as um we work out what our future looks like is just to make sure that um that the solutions are equitable and that we don't just revert by saying well you know we now have an economic crisis and therefore we have to make hard choices that disproportionately affect the most vulnerable and the most isolated so for me i think it is really important at this moment that we continue to champion the voice of those people and push for solutions but also that we are that we that we take the learning that we've got now and we are and that we start to build a new future for, from now forward it is my biggest concern that actually we 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 do some really good short-term interventions because we're in crisis mode but actually we then we then sacrifice some of the most vulnerable in our society as we make um what are what are classified as um economic choices um for you know and i i just don't think that we can allow that to happen i think that out of this we need a, a more equitable society and some choices so i think those of us that are passionate about this need to be really thinking about um building new models and putting the case forward for for a new future jude uh jude you need to unmute yourself i've done it and it's making sure that those people are around the table, you know, you know, everyone will have been through a shock. So it's about building their confidence, building their advocacy skills, building their skills, and also making sure that they have the platforms to be contributing and to be part of the conversation. And they are, they are around the table because they will, they will have ideas, they will have solutions and, and so long that they've been excluded and if we want to create a more equitable world which i really want it's about making sure that they are in the right place and that they are listened to um for too long they haven't been represented their voices haven't been listening listened to they're not part of of, of processes that directly affect them and that has been unacceptable. And, and, and this is a real opportunity, you know, in such a awful situation. I do hope that this will be something that will push forward. I was Ian as well, that uh, one of the things that has come out of this, um, I think we've all been talking about is new networks. So we've definitely collaborated with different people through this pandemic. Um, we've we've built and strengthened, built new relationships, strengthened old relationships um, with a range of partners that we never expected that we would be working with even just a few weeks ago. And I think that out of out of those networks comes new possibilities for us to learn from each other and to galvanize ourselves so i absolutely don't think we we need to make sure that we're, we're not losing individual voices and stories and and leaving people vulnerable but i think there is a power in us joining together and collaborating on this in a way that we have been able to over the last few weeks i i i really hope that one of the legacies that comes out of this is that those networks of um like-minded individuals 
skills remain as strong as they are and that we're, we're able to to create some 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 new thing some new benefits from that and something Marta alluded to is the, the difference between urban and rural settings. I mean, you know, Mattia, you're based in Rome, uh, Jude, and I know you work in London, and Sarah, I guess homelessness is often an urban urban challenge more than a rural one. To what extent do you think these um, these challenges are shared across rural and urban communities? I mean, are the stories people are telling similar from, from your experiences? And um, the positive example of community building, are they more urban or are they happening in the countryside as well? Uh, maybe Jude, if you want to you want to start first? It's very interesting because I've been thinking about the rural side of things recently. Um, you know, just this week I was I was speaking to a chief exec of a, a small charity in Leeds who works with the gypsy and Romani community and traveling community. Um, and often it's in rural areas that they're they're based. And I, you know, they have a very you know the 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 kind of big issues facing them within the pandemic are water access to water um lots of different lots of different things so i i definitely think that there is there is a difference in terms of rural and um in town um i think it's that it's that connectivity as well you know that, that there's distance there's such distance but then I've seen I've seen the great community work of people going to rural areas and dropping food products and things like that so I think we can learn from both. Sarah, anything you'd like to add? Um, I would just add that we have definitely, I mean, homelessness is more visible and concentrated in urban areas, and certainly that's where our services have been based. I think what, um, back to the point about networks through both um, collaborative fundraising um, and campaigning and also through grant programme, you know, we're in, we're in contact with, uh, you know, 230 organizations that um, are tackling homelessness in a range of situations and in rural communities and we're also are becoming quite quickly much more adept at using digital technology to connect people so that physical proximity isn't the same so i would say that that's something that we still need to work through but it is it is it will give greater visibility in my view to the challenges of rural homelessness which definitely exists in the uk but is um underrepresented i think in in our stories and, and certainly in our solutions Sorry, uh, what's the situation in Italy, Mattia? And we, we earlier talked about the fact that in Italy it's still quite common to live in intergenerational households, especially also in, in rural Italy, and that has led or has contributed to the to the spread of Corona uh, through generations. Um, is, how are people in the countryside responding? Frankly speaking, the countryside is doing quite well now <laughs> because I mean, urban connectivity was a minus now. And our NHS system has a few, has a, a, we call them the family doctor. I don't know how to translate in English. I mean, he's a public doctor, uh, help, um, he's a doctor of the, the whole family. And so they like, work like very, a GP, I think, your local okay. GP. They work very well with rural community. I mean, they knew what to do. They were in touch with people. And it's much worse in the urban context with... Uh, those kind of vulnerability. I mean, people in jail, 
old uh, old people, um, older people, and uh, Rom Roma community and refugees. We have some pocket where things are happening, and maybe somebody people are not monitoring what what's going on. And on, I think it's more on the it's more on the urban side than the rural side in this moment. And frankly speaking. Uh, they are working very well on the rural side of Italy most, most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, we did a poll before this, we did a poll this afternoon and uh, we asked people, just getting this up, um, uh, do you feel a stronger sense of community as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? And actually 96% uh, of people that we polled said, uh, yes, it is the case. Um, which, which is a, a, a very strong result. Is that something that is surprising anyone? Uh, maybe Sarah, is that, would you have expected that? I wouldn't have expected it to be 96%. No, I think that that's a remarkable figure. Um, I certainly would say that, uh, that um, uh, building on my previous comments about the number of people that have come forward to offer, um, uh, uh, to offer help and and support means that um, I certainly have a very uh, positive feeling about the sense of community that that that, uh, that we see here, particularly around the issue of homelessness. So I expect it to be positive, but not ninety six percent. Mattia, is it something you would have expected from your experience in Italy that that so many people feel a stronger sense of community at the moment? It was very true in our case at the beginning. We sing the national items for 15 days, 20 days, then we stop. Okay. So, I mean, it's, um, I have mixed feeling now, like if, yes, we, we, uh, we feel tight, we feel we're doing this together for real. But at the same time, uh, I feel that people are, are becoming tired. So they want, they're looking for scapegoats and they're lo looking for a, uh, uh, guilty people in the local government. In Lombardia, that's very true. I mean, in the northern of Italy. So now I think it's very true at the beginning. And frankly speaking, it's incredible. Like looking at what happened in the other countries. You, it's like if I'm living in Italy two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Everything is happening in the same way. I mean, a, a strong feeling of togetherness. Then it's, I mean, some problem. And then I think... Of course, we are in this thing together, but it's very important what we do next in the first months, weeks after the, the end of the real emergency. I think that's, that's, that makes the difference. If you look at, at Italy as, um, as the UK's future, what do you think the, the government or charities or you know, people like Sarah or Jude could maybe do here to empower communities um, when they go through that stage that moves them from this strong sense of community to, to the frustration and the scapegoating? How can they perhaps um, render that, that expression of discontent less, less, less um, divisive? I think we were going to have new vulnerable people. And that's the point. You have to tell the people that they are in this together. I mean, when you are vulnerable, vulnerable for the first time, you, uh, it's, you are angry. I mean, you, you, it's like if, I mean, you look for a, uh, for a scapegoat, but it's very important uh, telling people, okay, it was um, a pandemic and it's, and we're in this together. We have to face together 
those problems. They have to um, put together people, I think. I, I, I can't give advice to you, I mean. That's, but anyway, it's, um, it's very important to, um, I mean, to take in account, to, to know who is doing, who's not doing well in the next months. I mean, looking for people, looking for stories, understanding where, what, what, what's happening. It's like a social research working, understanding what's going worse in some communities uh, and who, where are the hidden vulnerable people. And who are the, I think even the middle class is going to be vulnerable in many ways. And that's the po a very important point, putting together who is, uh, who is always vulnerable with uh, new people, with older people that did, were at the beginning, sorry. No, that's, that's very good, that's very useful. And uh, I think this connects with a question we have from Andrea, could be Italian, uh, we don't know. And, and Andrea says, what do you envisage to be the biggest positive change within communities post COVID-19? Um, maybe Sarah, shall we, shall we start with you? Um, long-term, long-lasting positive change, what do you think is the likely to be the biggest positive change? Um, in our context, uh, so I'm uh, taking absolutely Matea's point. Um, we are, we're really concerned about the fact that actually this might get worse, not better for us. Um, I think that if we, um, if we, so, so I, I think that um, that's, that's our biggest problem, making sure it doesn't get worse, not get better. However, answering your question about what I think is positive in this, I do really think that it is the, um, it is the new levels of interest that we've had in inequality in society, some of the most vulnerable in society, and where people have brought their, their skills and their resources and are offering those to find new solutions. So whether that's around digital inclusion for people that have been excluded, which will open up not just communication, but access to livelihoods and so forth, I think that that could be an opportunity. So I think that networks, volunteering, uh, new resources that are coming into uh, the fight against homelessness would be the things that I would say would be the most most positive. And uh, Jude, what do you what would you tell Andrea? What um, in, in your ideal world, what will be the most positive? I mean, I would also say that I completely agree with Mattia as well, that I am worried about what happens next. But I think what is positive is innovation. You know, people are looking at different ways to create change, innovating, you know, even just changing models. So um, 3D printers are now making masks for the NHS. You know, there will be there will be um, ways that people will look at um, innovate, innovate differently and hopefully look at where the systems have failed and have been failing and how we can really look at things through a systemic lens. And, um, and I think that that will be positive. But I mean, I look at the rise of the mutual aid groups, you know, what will happen to those groups um, and how, how you nurture and encourage and support those groups long-term. So, because this is a, this is long-term. There's no doubt. And I think, as Mattia said, there's going to be a new group of vulnerable people 
So the most vulnerable people that we that we work with are going to be even more vulnerable, and that that's why we need we need to all be connecting, having these conversations, involving other people in the conversations, and and exploring solutions for the future in a way now, so that we're 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 starting to to think like that. And then maybe closing, closing with you, Mattia, uh, you, you're really interested in community organizing. What is a really positive change that can be taken out of this experience that can be translated into a long-term improvement in the way communities are organized, maybe in your hometown, maybe in, in Rome? First of all, I think that people are going to ask for having a voice because sometimes people are shy. They don't, do not ask for a, for a change, but after such a bad things that happen in their life, maybe they understood that they have to ask something. And I think that's, that, that it will be interesting. I think that many people don't want to delegate anymore uh, because they, maybe because they're afraid, maybe because they will remember that um, very bad things can happen. And I think we were going to, I don't know who right now, maybe I have some ideas, but I think that people are going to to, uh, to have, ask for having a voice and for organizing uh, demands and organizing people, grassroots movements, I'm pretty sure that something is going to change. I don't know if it's for the better or the worse, but something is going to change for sure. Okay, and that on that uh, semi-positive note, I think we've come to the end of <laughs> our <laughs> to the end of our discussion on, uh, on together. I'm thirty and... days at home. Sorry, I'm thirty days at home. Sorry, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we, we <laughs> make we make, we take that into account. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, thank you, Matia, for for that, and uh, thank you to all of our speakers for for joining us today virtually to talk about togetherness in times of crisis. I think we are probably a good example of togetherness in times of crisis here virtually today. And uh, thank you to everyone who joined us uh, at home today. You can find out more about the work we do here at Cumberland Lodge on our website at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. And we do hope that you will join us for our next webinar on Wednesday, the 6th of May, um, when we will be talking about uh, WordPress Freedom Day and implications for media coverage uh, at the moment during the COVID-19 pandemic. Do spread the word if you think someone else you might uh, you know, might be interested in watching the series. And uh, we do hope to broadcast our webinars more regularly whilst Cumberland Lodge is closed to guests until the end of June. And so we're looking forward to many more important conversations in the upcoming weeks. So um, thank you once again to Mattia, Jude and Sarah for joining us today. And thank you to all of you for watching. Stay safe. Goodbye.